you are the first line of defense against foreign influence operations. By protecting your systems, you're protecting your voice and protecting our country. Please don't hesitate to reach out to your local FBI office with any questions or concerns. Your voice matters, so protect it. Welcome to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where each week your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact, episode 102. I am your host, John Little. And, uh, you know, first of all, before we get started, I want to thank uh, all of you for your emails. Uh, I love hearing um, from Covert Contact listeners. I'm getting emails from all kinds of unusual places. Those are the ones I like best. Um, but, yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, let me know what you like about the show. Let me know what you would like covered. You have great ideas. Uh, and, you know, if you're an expert or uh, have something to say, have a voice, um, let me know. Um there might be a spot for you here on the show. So you can reach out at covertcontact at protonmail.com. If you create a ProtonMail account and email me from that, it will be encrypted and uh, much more secure. So I look forward to hearing from you. It is Thursday, so William Tucker is back to talk counterintelligence. William, welcome back to Covert Contact. Oh, thanks for having me again. Oh, uh, you know, I was thinking about... Uh, you know, our show last week, and we were talking about the volume of, of uh, counterintelligence cases um, opened against the Chinese. And I think the, uh, the number dropped from Christopher Ray, who you heard at the top of the show, talking about uh, uh, their efforts to get the commercial sector and, and citizens to pay attention to security. Uh, they're opening up, what, five, they have 5,000 cases or nearly 5,000 cases, and they said they were opening one up every every 10 hours. So that means since you and I talked a week ago, that's something like 17 new cases. That's an insane pace. And maybe we can talk a little bit about yeah. <laughs> just how difficult that is to to do and sustain. So you also have to keep in mind that a single agency and those cases every 10 hours are specifically Chinese. So that's only about half of what the FBI has open. Um, as far as other agencies, uh, they have their own issues uh, pursuing those sometimes in conjunction with the FBI. Sometimes there are offensive operations that are taking place overseas. Um, and now that we're in full swing of campaign season with the upcoming uh, election, you're going to have to deal with uh, malign foreign influence, which is even more assets that you have to uh, kind of throw into the pit. Yeah, the it, level yeah, the level is. this next two months is like off the charts. I mean, it's it's if it's bad now, it's going to double, triple, quadruple in a couple of months ahead. Yeah, so there there is a silver lining here, if you want to call it. That. We don't we don't do silver um, linings on this show. Okay, we'll we'll <laughs> knock it down to wrong line. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, when you have some of these. Uh, some of these counterintelligence cases. So let's say you're doing um, what we call defensive uh, counterintelligence. So that's uh, that's the bulk of what uh, Christopher Ray is probably alluding to with those 5,000 cases. So that means that some 
by some method, like a complaint type investigation. That means somebody alerted the FBI, hey, we have a problem, this dude's acting weird. Um, we've noticed that maybe some of our proprietary information, hardware is missing, things like that that'll tip off uh, uh, an investigation. Um, now, the good thing with that is that when you have that high volume, is that there's a lot of interplay between cases. So it doesn't necessarily uh, drop the, the number of people that you have to uh, throw at that issue. It, but it does say maybe we can flatten this a little bit once we start making connections here. But that's, a, that's kind of the key is making those connections. And that can take a lot of time. Um, and, and the other thing is uh, some of these cases can drag on for a long, long time. So you're going to have to lean on other methods to kind of disrupt what your adversary is doing. And one of those is looking at maybe other laws that can that they can lean on, say, hey, export is one. We see that a lot in private industry. Um, others would be visa fraud. I think I've mentioned that before, where you have to declare, um, obviously, you know, if, are you a member of a foreign military, a foreign intelligence service? And, of course, there's also the Foreign Agent Registration Act. The FARA Act, which uh, is, is one that's used to uh, trip up a lot of a lot of our adversaries, too. Basically, what you're saying here is you're not going to go all in on every single case, right? And in some instances, it, it makes more sense to just disrupt it and move on. And you're not going to, you know, apply a full contingent of folks to this to to tail people to do a deeper investigation to try to flip them. All that stuff, like that's a huge investment. Sometimes you just shut it them is. down. It, yeah, and that's, sometimes that's all you're left with, especially when you're dealing with such a volume. Um, but there's also times where where you have a case, um, uh, an issue that comes to your attention. Maybe FBI opens a case. Uh, maybe another agency starts running with it. But sometimes it's further along where you're not really disrupting it. Um, so it kind of limits your options to the point where either we're going to have to make arrests because we've come into this at this point and we have this uh, volume of evidence. Or we can either flip it because disrupting it at that point is just kind of like uh, slapping on the wrist, sending them home. Uh, you know, thanks for coming. We know you got a lot of other <laughs> stuff. There's nothing we can do about it. You get a participation no, medal. Yeah, these guys don't want to give up. So they're they're going to uh, they're going to pursue cases like that when um, when they get when it comes to attention when something's already developed. Um, but there's also these cases where they they catch on something really early on. And uh, there's there's like, well, could we disrupt this, this guy? Is there something up we can get this guy on? Or do we just have to wait for him to do what we know he's going to do? And then we'll have to jump on it then. And and sometimes you're kind of forced into that. Uh, again, you're, you know, you don't always get the choice in it. <laughs> you right. know, these guys make their choices for you. So, yeah, but then you'll have to jump on it. Um, and kind of deal with it with whatever you know tools you have available. But either way, like the volume now is like and it's it's really insane. And and as you yeah. said, we're we're not even getting into uh, you know um, the election. And you know these these threats are not just coming from Russia and China. Uh, they're coming from lots of different um, lots of different directions. Um, how do you think the Chinese? Uh, in, in fact, it Go ahead. I would say on average, uh, on average, you have about 100 uh, espionage cases ranging from 140 different nations each year in the United States. So, um, yeah, it's it's a big it's a big problem set. I'm going to ask you to 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 think like the adversary here. You know, if you're China, 
and you know, all of a sudden you're really in the crosshairs. You've been sort of running free for a long time, uh, and increasingly uh, you're you're in the spotlight, and you know you know that this um, that you're essentially you know adversary number one, and things are getting rolled up. What do you think this looks like from their perspective? Um, do you double down on on the technical stuff? Uh, it's certainly um, certainly an area they're proficient in, and, and there's plenty of easy pickings there, and it's a lot easier to you know avoid these kind of roll-ups and stuff. Yeah, one of the things uh, that China actually does better than people give them credit for is uh, disinformation. So they'll put out things like that. One of the, obviously, the, there's the racial aspect of it. One of the first encounters that I had, and this actually intersects with the FBI, um, the lead agent on the case, when he was on the stand, he was accused of, uh, you know, racial profiling. And it just so happened that he was married to a Chinese national. Uh, so, you know, that kind of, that that line of inquiry died pretty quick. But <laughs> Yeah, you and I have touched on that yeah. before. It's 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 a sensitive topic, right? Because, um, it sure is, yeah. you know, that's one of the things we focus on China a lot. You and I have talked about it. Like, we don't want to, uh, you know, to make it... Um, you know, we're not trying to do like red scare type stuff and say that everybody from China uh, or, you know, um, all ethnic Chinese are, you know, involved in this activity or any of that nonsense. But at the same time, like you, ha- you can't you have to accept like the reality of the like the breadth of the network. Right. And, and the scope of, of the activity sure. here. And so it's a uh, it's a uh, it's I don't know, it's a challenging line. But, yeah, that's certainly something that I, I don't think either one of us would ever be accused of, nor do we think like that. No, as I often say, behavior is your number one indicator. But one of the things I think that's interesting about the um, the racial line of inquiry when it comes to uh, China and their pushback on that um, is that, one, China likes to target ethnic Chinese. They've diversified in recent years, but they like to target their own people. So, one, we need to keep that in mind. So that's a government versus people issue. Right. Um yeah, so it's, it's not it's not like this is a one way street. No, it's uh, China targets ethnic Chinese for that very reason, and they like to uh, leverage those people by threatening people, uh, family members that are still in country, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, it's it's a game we've played before, um, and it's, it doesn't make it easier, but it does it it, it is somewhat effective um, um, disinformation that China does like to put out. Yeah, and they're no, they're known for uh, you know they don't necessarily have to come visit you to threaten you. They'll pick up the phone and call you from yeah. uh, grandma's house, <laughs> like literally yeah. in grandma's house, and and uh, do it that way. Yeah, and uh, we've, I've seen that with other countries too, where they'll do that same thing, um, and they have no qualms about threatening the citizens either. So you could have a U.S. citizen that uh, you know maybe naturalized. They could even be second, third generation, but if they have family over there, you better believe that they will use that family's leverage. And it does happen. And I know I've had to educate a lot of people on that and, and let them know that if you're threatened, you, you know, report it and we'll work with it. Um, but, but if you, if you do nothing and, uh, decide to, you know, bend to their will, the only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to jail your family members that are still in country are, are still going to be threatened. Uh, it doesn't get any easier. So it's, it's really better to report it and we can work, you know, and we can work with it that way. Yeah. And limiting this activity um, is, is really the best way to protect those folks, right. By, 
by shutting these networks down and not letting them operate at scale and, um, you know, chasing yeah. these things down, that, uh, that uh, you know, is probably the best hope for a lot of people who are, who are vulnerable, uh, who may not even want to do this, but feel like they have to or feel like uh, they don't really have a choice. This is not a uh, pleasant business. No, and, uh, you know, there's a, but on the other hand, one of the things with China is I think they knew that um, their their level of collection would eventually be challenged. Uh, and part of that actually occurred, I want to say, May 2001. Uh, it was a major defection from China, a Chinese general. Uh, at the time, this, this individual was actually debriefed by um, the CIA director and uh, national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. Um, so that's how big of a defection this was. And of course, this kind of fell away. You know, we had 9-11 a few months later. But um, one of the things that it really shows is that China really took advantage of, um, one, their economic growth. Now they have access. And now much of the Western world is uh, dealing with counterterrorism, not necessarily other geopolitical issues of uh, East Asia. And when something does, did happen in East Asia, it was usually some something to do with North Korea lighting something off. So that's right. Attacking um, the, uh, so China, yeah. the ocean over there. Yeah. So, so China had a lot of cover for a lot and long, long time. And now that cover is coming to an end, but I think, uh, I think they anticipated that at some point. Um, and I, I think right now is, is they're going to keep doing what they're doing. They're going to try to, uh, play some of their best customers, uh, against one another. And that would be, uh, uh, between the United States and Europe and, and try to maintain trade relations where they can. But um, that's going to be uh, a very tough, tough issue long term. So we'll see how that works out. But um, yeah, so like I said, yeah, China's had a lot of people running interference for them. But now that they, and it's really come into the spotlight, um, one of the things I also like to point out is that when you have such a large volume, you have interconnection between these cases because it's very difficult for one individual, say one case officer, one more out there to deal with, say, I don't know, a couple hundred individuals that is that are passing them information. Uh, you can only have such a, a diplomatic mission or a consul uh, that is so large. I mean, yeah, you could say we're a larger country. We can have a larger mission. Sure. But um Eventually, you know, you know, your host countries are going to start to push back on that, and I think that's part of what we saw with Houston, and of course the the cases that were associated with the Houston consulate. But uh, it, yeah, and it's one of the things that we pulled the string, the string on one case, and it's going to lead us to probably ten others. And I, I'm betting that's what really plays into the volume of reporting right now. Yeah, and there's really, I guess it's it's highly unlikely that they back away even under extreme pressure because they 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 do have the benefit of still being able to overwhelm us with with volume and probably to some extent intentional noise um it's it's just um there's too much integration and there's too much um openness on our side to really you know to seriously curtail this right i mean this is just going to be a a persistent challenge for us yeah i think in the short term it will be in the long term uh Things will start to even out. I really don't think there's any way we're going to get a deal with uh, with China, um, and mainly that's just because of the way they position themselves globally. Um, it's going to be very difficult to say, "Hey, you need to do this, this, and this." Um, 
you know, if you want to maintain trade relations with the United States, and it's not so much that they they don't want to. I mean, obviously they don't, but I don't think they actually can, which is going to put the U.S. and and China at odds for a long time. So um, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on everything from uh, like your academic exchanges, um, military cooperation, what little there was. Things of that nature are really going to start to dry up just because of uh, just because of the realities of both these nations and what they're facing. Yeah, they've really uh, done a number on us with the academic cooperation. Uh, that's something I still think is uh, significantly underappreciated. Yeah, and and it is. I mean, when you have uh, when you have American institutions that are willing to play along with that, or at least uh, have individuals on their staff that are willing to play along with uh, what the Chinese are doing, or at least turn a blind eye to it. Um, as long as that money's rolling in, it's hard to say no. Because to run an academic institution is not cheap. So, you know, I, I do understand that. Um, but there's a point where you have to realize that they're going to put you out of business or at the very least harm your reputation to the point where um, you're going to lose money because people don't want to go to school there. Yeah, no, the the end game for them is always, uh, you know, putting you out of business. And I've, I've you know, been involved in uh, some of those discussions on the private sector. And I was just always amazed at uh, how how eager folks were to, to just hand over IP um, and, uh, you know, really other other kinds of valuable, you know, you know process information and technical information. Um you know, just to kick off those relationships. Uh, yeah, it's and, definitely short sighted. In the private sector, yeah, in the private sector, one of the things, I don't know, say maybe 15 years ago, I remember some of these conversations, and this was usually with your, um, with the sales end of uh, your private institutions, not necessarily academia, but like uh, um, any sort of major manufacturer, um, anybody that's developing anything. And I remember one of them, he said, um, He's like, why do we treat China like a threat? We should be learning from China. And I said, name one technology that China developed in the last 15 years that it was not stolen from another nation. And, you know, it was just kind of a stunning silence of, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And it's, and they've really done nothing, nothing innovative, nothing unique. Everything else has been on the coattails of um, either the United States or some of these uh European nations that do have cutting edge uh, tech, um, and that's just where a lot of their development came from. And and so, so if if you're insisting that we learn from the Chinese, um, the things that we should be learning from the Chinese are how to be as cutthroat as possible and uh, steal tech. Which hey, I'm not opposed to. <laughs> it's part of the game. Right. Um, <laughs> so if, if that's what you're suggesting, then sure, yeah, let's just jump in. Um, because you know everybody else does it, and we've been playing defense for far too long. So we need to. Uh, it's one of those things you need to be able to show up on the street for that street fight, but you better by God win it. <laughs> that reminds me of the uh, of the uh, you know the widening cooperation with uh, the Russian space program uh, back in the shuttle days, and and then what oh, do sure. you what do you know? A few years later, there's a Soviet shuttle, and it looks. <laughs> It's a you know it's not a carbon copy of ours, but uh, you know they took ours and slapped a couple of air breathing engines on it, and it's you know but there you go. Um, you know that that is actually a fascinating story because um, 
the Russians were not, the Russians knew the U.S. system pretty well. And what they actually did is, uh, so much of the U.S. shell design was open source. So whenever some, a new, uh, a new paper was published on what they were doing with shuttle design. Um, it was it was pushed into the public store. So the guy at the I think it was the Soviet uh, embassy in uh, Washington actually on his lunch break would go down and pay a few dollars to get uh, to get the, the newest uh, NASA paper printed off, and then he'd take it back to the embassy and shoot it over to Moscow. Um, so that's how a lot of that happened. So, I mean, we got pretty far along in shuttle development before the FBI said, hey, uh, NASA, you need to do something about this. Um, yeah, but if- what's funny is today the, the Russians still insist, even though that they did that, they still built a better shuttle, even though it never really, uh, I think it only flew once, uh, and they had issues with the heating tiles. And that's one of the things that was disinformation that the FBI put in there. Um, they said, hey, NASA, if you're going to keep publishing it, why don't we change the type of adhesive that you use for those ceramic, uh, uh, that ceramic heat shield? And sure enough, uh, NASA put it in something uh, that they knew didn't work, and the Russians replicated that. And sure enough, it failed, and that's why it only flew one. But, yeah, and it, it's so there's, there's an relatively easy to to you know take something and improve upon it when you don't have to do the you know the really difficult oh, yeah. work of, of building it from the ground up. Uh, but I have, oh, yeah. I have stories, um, not for the podcast, but if we ever get a chance to have a beer since I was back there in those days. But, uh, you know, one of the things that was always amusing to me was uh, uh, going to the watering holes around uh, Johnson Space Center and seeing like straight up hardcore engineering nerds with pocket protectors and uh, stunningly beautiful Russian journalists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. You know, I, I get one of the criticisms that I get in some of my feedbacks for some of my training is I have a phrase and I say, men are dumb. <laughs> and I said, you know, I, and, and it's, I don't care. I don't really care what walk of life you come from. Um, it, it just seems far too easy to, to induce somebody of our, <laughs> of our male cohorts <laughs> to, to give something up just by, just by a simple flirtation, but it I mean, happens a lot. If you if you haven't spent any time thinking about risk and security, if you haven't, if you're just a normal person and you're not like us, um, then yeah, you're pretty much toast. Uh, at least most guys are. Um, well, I know guys that, that that got sucked into that, and they should have known better. Uh, oh, fortunately, they didn't lose anything. But uh, yeah, it it does happen. I mean, um, we've had it up to the director level, uh, right? Oh, yeah. People who should really, really, really know better. Um, so, yeah, that shows you how profound that weakness is. Uh, and that, you know, boy, that one's never going away. Uh, that one's foolproof. No, never. I, I've, I've learned, I, I keep it in my training, but it'll you'll never train somebody out of it. It just, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And there's not really much you can do. I mean, yeah, outside of getting them to think about it, and like seriously think about it, if you can get 30 minutes of their time to really tell them about how easy that approach is and how they should be aware of it, that might, that might trigger uh, some suspicion later on, but uh, 99% chance that it doesn't in most people. <laughs> she really likes me. Uh, anyway, um, uh, that's, we should, we should probably do like a, an episode just on that and pull up some cases. Cause there's so many of them. Um, oh, yeah. Give me five minutes. I have a volume for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know we were talking earlier about uh, another case that you had your eye on that's not China related. Oh, there's a 
uh, naval case. This is uh, Chief Betty Officer Charles Briggs. He didn't really catch a lot of headlines because it's still very early in the case. Um, but, yeah, this individual, he he's accused of passing uh, classified information to a Russian national. Um, we don't know the volume of what he passed. Um, as far as I can tell, it was classified at the secret level. And he used his access as an IT administrator to uh, uh, to do that. So he was able to obviously access what he was um, authorized to access and was able to output that and pass it off. Uh, there's a few things that uh, came up in the case. Uh, again, we don't know much, but we, we do know that, one, he, uh, he lied about knowing foreign nationals when he was putting in his clearance paperwork. Um he took vacation, claimed he was going to stay in Nebraska at the time he was stationed at Ovid Air Force Base. Um, he did not. He went to Serbia. I love so that. I love that hard. one. I mean, talk about red flags. Yeah. yeah. That's a hard one to explain, uh, unless maybe yeah. there's family there or something like that. But that sounds, uh, that should still draw some flags. No. Um, there's a, so I'm still kind of torn. I don't know if he volunteered or if he was coerced. Because one of the other charges against him, uh, well, two other charges involve child porn, um, possession, attempting to view. So I don't know if that played a role in how he was uncovered because sometimes guys like this are very tough to, to figure out because you don't always have a, a ton of red flags and behavior that you're going to catch up on. Because the military, you know, you go on leave, they don't always track your physical whereabouts in real time. So he left, he went on vacation, he lied on his uh, form. So the only way you're really going to find that out is if one, he's dumb enough to say to a coworker or post it on social media. But otherwise, um, there would have to be something else there that kind of uh, tips off law enforcement that he was, you know, he was passing something to the Russians. So we just don't know that yet. Yeah, the, uh, the, the ways are way too varied for us to even speculate on, right? Um a lot of possible yeah, angles. But, uh, uh, just looking at the litany of charges, I'm going to I'm going to guess that it was something uh, something along the lines of, of blackmail, and that uh, he already had an existing uh, relationship with an individual, and that just made it that much easier to exploit him or force him to do this, or perhaps uh, offer him money in exchange. We again, we just don't know yet. Yeah, let's talk about the um, you know the the behavior that might have compromised him. Uh, I was telling you offline that, uh, you know, I worked a, um, a case where folks on a, on a government, you know, pretty secure government site were, and this is in the early days of the internet, but they were using the government network to uh, access a uh, Russian porn site and download pornography to their government computers. And that doesn't happen as much today because people are, are aware of uh, that they're being monitored. Um, but it's just um, sort of never ceases to amaze me at how how much risk people are willing to put themselves in this. You know, this wasn't illegal pornography, but uh, even doing that from uh, a government network, which is easily discoverable on the other side, uh, would put you at, you know, potentially at risk. And, um, you know, I, I guess it's a good thing in some ways that people don't think about this because it makes it easier, for, easier to, to catch them. And now we don't even, I mean, we have, Obviously, there is there is monitoring going on, but there's also uh, trip wires out there too. I mean, the government does put together, and of course, private industry does as well. IP pools of known bad IP addresses for whatever reason, 
And, uh, yeah, so if somebody, if you see some outbound traffic trying to hit, uh, <laughs> hit that, it's, uh, it's a red flag, certainly. Your VPN is not going to save you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, none of, you know, none of the things that people do really, if, uh, if they, um, you know, if they do stuff that trips enough flags and sparks enough interest, uh, um, they're, they're more than likely going to get caught, event, you know, sooner or later. It won't take long. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, well, it's, uh, it keeps it interesting. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we talk about technology and tradecraft and everything else, but at the end of the day, like it's, it's human nature and human failings that sort of underpin all of this, right? That's like the common, the common sort of yeah, that- foundation. Yeah, and that that certainly won't go away. Uh, like I think on our last uh, last episode when we discussed um, that uh, Singapore national, um, you know, he was using LinkedIn to facilitate communication. But after that, you know, you're you're getting into the uh, traditional trade tradecraft methodology. So um, yeah, it looks shiny and new, but it really comes down to it. Um, we're still dealing with humans. It's just networking <laughs> at the end of the day, yep. right? Uh, it doesn't matter yep. if it happens online or at a conference or, uh, or any other kind of event. It's the same behavior. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. Well, it's something, uh, something I have to pay attention to here. You know, I'm getting, you know, I get email from all over the world. Um, and I'm grateful, but, uh, I also get some, some fairly unusual activity as well, uh, and approaches. And, well, uh, as you can imagine, it'll keep you young. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, luckily, it's you know, it's fairly easy uh, to keep that kind of stuff at arm's length, especially if you're aware of it and looking for it. But yeah, it's it's a pretty charged and very active environment right now, uh, more so than you know any time in recent history that I can remember. Of course, heading into the election sort of adds fuel to all of that as well. Yeah, and that that uh, that won't change. I mean, it's always been there. Um, it's been magnified recently, but, uh, yeah. yeah, that's, that's something that we're going to uh, certainly have to tackle, but we're also going to have to live with it, understand and understand that, yeah, there's, there's people out there that want to influence our elections and they're not all adversaries. A lot of them are allies. So they're going to, they're going to play their role too. It's the nature of the game. Yeah. And we're going to keep doing this every Thursday. Um, you know, and, and part of what you and I both want to achieve through this is just to get, you know, there's a lot of listeners that are, are experts in this arena or even professionals in this arena, uh, both friendly and hostile. But uh, aside, aside from those folks, you know, we're just trying to get people to think like this and to be aware of it and to accept the reality of this and be a little bit more critical in their sort of view of of activity around them and relationships and uh, be a little bit safer. That's uh you know, everybody, each one of us, like we're the first line of defense, right? Like your individual behavior and the things, the choices that you make, uh, the relationships that you have and, and all of that can, you can prevent problems like this. Um, you can't fight all of them, but you cannot, you cannot be no. part of the problem. Yeah. And one of the things I, that I think it's important to point out is that we often talk about this from a national perspective, you know, the individual is the first line of defense, but we also have to think about um, the individual being the first line of defense for their own, you know, personal lives. Uh, you built your life, you built your business. You should want to protect it, right? Um, and if they, and that's, you know, that's something important to really hit on too, because um, you know, you just see these layoffs of these 
people going out of business, even worse now uh, with the pandemic. And um, you don't want to be the guy who said, hey, you could have avoided this, you know, after the fact. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, yeah, you know, a lot of times you can't avoid these things if you just take an interest in protecting your brand. You know, and if you're interested in this at all, like take some time and actually read um, read about so, you know, any any person who is, you know, a high profile um spy or, or betrayed their country and you know uh, uh there's tons of cold war histories and look at how how each one of those lives ended you know, almost almost universally uh in isolation depression alcoholism the movies are great but not as it's not sexy right it it, it ends in ruin in the vast number of you know, cases you know and even if you have a attention span and don't want to read anything, I'm going to recommend a video that's on YouTube. It's uh, Christopher Boyce, D-O-Y-C-E. He mm-hmm. was convicted of espionage here in the United States. But his testimony to Congress um, after his conviction is out there, and he details a lot of that. He said, you know, the education out there tells you not to do this, not to do this, but at no time did any of that education tell you what would happen right. if you decided to do it you know, other than jail time, but what it would do to you personally. So that was, that was just not there in the education. And so you make an excellent point um, that, uh, yeah, it does. It takes a toll. And I think that video is uh, uh, something, to, something to take a few minutes and uh, view that. Yeah, I mean, they're just almost universally sad, sad cases. Not that I, you know, particularly feel sorry for them with the choices they made, um, but it's just really revealing and it shows you that there's sort of a universal outcome to this um that's very hard for most people to escape and uh you know uh that's a, really all i have to say about that but we might have to revisit that that would be another show that we could do is dig into some of those high profile cases and there's some good documentaries on the on that type of um situation as well that uh i might come back and recommend at some point um but yeah, yeah. there's there's some out there and i have uh i've i've a few in recent years i don't know if um where they're accessible at so i might have to do some digging myself to see if they're see if they're out there on youtube because i know a lot of these government uh, videos are, are public domain so they might be accessible to uh, just by going to their website um, but uh, yeah, i'll do some looking into that sounds good all right well let's wrap it up uh, it's been a good chat and we'll do it again thursday and uh you know, the amount of stuff we, we're going to have to talk about is only going to ramp up. It's going to be pretty hardcore for the next leading, you know, for the next couple of months leading into November. Um, I expect I expect more hits to roll in. So, yeah, it'll be fun. At some point, we may even have to talk about, like, uh, well, I won't, I won't reveal that now. We'll save it for conversation offline. <laughs> but uh, uh, plenty to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We'll talk to you next Thursday. Always a pleasure, John. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.